Amen, amen. Hey, as you're sitting down, we're going to be in the book of Galatians this morning, chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for you to take that home. Let that be a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front of it. It's going to let you know where the book of Galatians is located. And then just the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. Again, this morning, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 1 through 5. We've been making our way through uh, the book of Galatians and, and seeing what the Lord has for us in this. And today we come to a, a, a pretty interesting passage where Paul is directly confronting uh, this church there in Galatia. And he's confronting them about how their knowledge and what they know is not being met out in how they live and, and, and the experiences of this church. And I was kind of going through and I was thinking about this and trying to understand what their issues are and, and, and what's being communicated. And the crux of it just kind of came to me in this picture. I, I saw this, uh, or in this video rather, I was scrolling on the, the endless sea of the internet a couple of weeks ago and uh, it comes up and there's this guy standing on a subway platform. He's got shoulder length hair, he's kind of scrawny, and he's, he's standing there and he's just getting himself jacked up I mean he is I mean just kind of slapping himself and like he is getting himself amped up and I'm like what in the world where is this going and then all of a sudden the the train starts coming in uh, from this side and begins to make its way across and he's just like slapping himself and he walks up and the train's kind of moving this direction and he's just ready right and I'm thinking does he is there like a seat he's like he's OCD like there's this seat right by the pole and that's the only seat he can sit in it's in the fourth car down and all these things so he's just getting ready and then all of a sudden he just reaches up and he grabs a hold of the train and he's just holding on like this and he's got his feet doing this number and he's sliding along he's sliding along and he's sliding along and then the train stops he's like "Woo! i did it you're welcome you're welcome you're i mean like people are getting off the train and he's like you're safe I stopped it. He backs up and he's popping his neck and he's popping his knuckles and he's chalking up his hands again. He's getting ready and he walks up to that train like this and he puts his hands on the side of it. And he goes, doors closed and he just begins to do this number. He begins to make his way across and then just shoves as hard as he can. And he says, Woo! Oh Lord, I did it. I stopped it and I sent it. Now you and I watch this and we think, brother needs some help right? He needs a support group. He needs some friends. And there is no way in the world that his puny self did anything to help that thing stop. And there's no way in the world that he did anything to propel it on to the next station, right? I mean, like, that's, that's our takeaway from that. We just say, that's hilarious. You're super strange. The Apostle Paul confronts a reality that's taking place in the church there, the churches of Galatia. Where they have come to this understanding where, where they are the masters of their faith. That they are wholly self-sustained. And that they are wholly propelled on the efforts of their own strength. And I would ask you, what is more ludicrous? That this skinny, scrawny guy standing on a platform could push this train? Or that you and I in our feebleness, in our flesh, 
could make it through this life without being fully dependent on the Spirit. Listen, it may seem unlikely to you, but I believe it is more likely that this brother stopped and started that train than it is that any of us could make it through this life without being fully dependent upon the Spirit of God. And that's what the Apostle Paul puts before us today. Listen to the way that he addresses the churches of Galatia. He says, oh foolish Galatians. J.B. Phillips writes it like this. He says, you dear idiotic Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, this isn't how we begin very much of our correspondence with people, right? When we find somebody we have an issue with, we find somebody that's heading in the wrong way, most of us don't walk up and just say, uh, foolish person, let me catch you in the midst of what you're doing. But lest you think that Paul has just kind of had his fill and just can't take it anymore, back in chapter 1 and verse 11, Paul referred to those in Galatia as his brothers. Later on, he's going to refer to them as his children. Paul is so incredibly convinced that the path they're headed towards is devastating. That the path they're headed towards leads them away from Jesus. And so he wants to arrest them in that progress. And so he does so with strong language. And he lets them recognize that what they're doing is not wise. But the word that he uses there also conveys the idea that they know better. That they know, in essence, that these aren't things that they can do. But what they're doing is failing to apply their knowledge to their experience. They're failing to apply their knowledge. They're failing to apply, apply what they know about Jesus. They're failing to apply what they know of themselves to the experience that they're currently going through. And what their actions are doing are leading them not to a greater dependency upon Jesus. They're leading them away from Jesus to a greater dependency upon themselves. And look at what he says. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? Who's working an influence over you? Well, we recognize who it is. And it's not solely those who've come into town. Behind all such distractions, behind all such movements to to lure Christians away, behind all such movements to make us move away from justification by faith alone, behind all such movements to see us be, be solidly founded on ourselves, resting in our strength, behind every single action of this kind lies one source. And this is what Peter says of it in 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And how is he seeking to devour them? He was seeking to point out to them. Faith and and, and the spirit and all these things seem awfully nebulous. They seem awfully out there. They seem kind of beyond your experience and beyond the realm of what makes you comfortable. But you know what makes you comfortable? You know what brings it back into the realm of I can do this and I cannot do that? You know what brings it back into this realm? Adherence to the law. Listen, you just need to do the right things in the right way and you're going to be totally fine. And this is really what God wants from you. This is what the enemy was using in the churches of Galatia. 
to lure them away from faith and dependence in Jesus. Paul says he has bewitched you. He's using the enemies of the cross to come in and to lure the Galatian believers away. What does Paul confront it with? What does he bring in to wake them up from this stupor? He brings in the crucifixion. He says it was before your eyes that Christ was publicly proclaimed as crucified. Now this is what Paul in essence is saying. Listen, you are followers and believers in Jesus Christ. The crucifixion isn't something out there and remote and distant for you. The crucifixion for you is something firmly implanted in your mind. It's not just that when you think of the crucifixion, you can see Jesus hanging on the cross. But when you think of the crucifixion, you recognize all the implications of it. Because, because of the crucifixion, there is no wrath from God for you. Because of the crucifixion, these works that you're doing is seeking to heap on empty blessings on something that Christ has already filled up. Because of the crucifixion, you are forgiven. Because of the crucifixion, you are redeemed. Because of the crucifixion, there is nothing left to do for you that Jesus hasn't already done. And you know this. And you are aware of this. But you find yourselves in the middle of this thing of knowing this, of believing this, but not in applying this to your heart. And this is where the enemy wants us. Satan is not all that concerned with what you know. He's not all that concerned that you have this knowledge in your head. What he wants to stop is this intersection from your heart, from your head to your heart. He doesn't want it to permeate your being. So he's going to use people in your lives. He's going to use experiences in your lives. He's going to use you and your self-doubt. To say this may be true of somebody else, but it's not true of me. This may be available for somebody else, but it's not available for me. This may be right for somebody else, but it's not right for me. Justification through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone meets you in the midst of those things. The crucifixion of Christ, him hanging upon the cross, taking the wrath of God, means that there is no wrath left over for you. In the midst of your waywardness, I visited with a pastor friend of mine this week, and he reminded me of these things. I was talking about uh, Hebrews 12, and in Hebrews 12, he says, Every son whom he loves, he rebukes. Any son without the discipline of the Lord, it is evidence that they are not a true son. They are an illegitimate child. And so I'm, I'm talking about it with him, and in the midst of it, he says, hold on a second. He says, the, the way you're talking about this and the way you're thinking through this, I just want to check your heart on something. And so he starts running me back through this idea and and, and, and revealing in the midst of this how I was saying something that was not true. And I was saying something, believing something that was not accurate. And it's this idea that for you in the midst of your sin right now, and it doesn't matter what that sin is, there is no wrath of God coming for you. Now think about that. If you are in Christ, God's wrath has been satisfied in the person of Jesus. Are there consequences for your sin? Yes. Will God use his Holy Spirit to convict you and drive you back to him? Praise God, absolutely. But is God's wrath, his anger, his punishment ultimately headed for you? No. This is what Paul tries to win them back with. They were doing the right things in the right way in an effort to avoid God's wrath. And Paul says, you've already avoided it. 
Jesus took it upon himself in the cross. So look at what he does. He begins to move into this series of questions in, three, in two through five. He starts with this idea of the basis of their faith. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In essence, he said, let's just go back to when you weren't a Christian. And you came to this understanding. Listen, I recognize that I have sinned. I have transgressed God's character. I have transgressed God's law. That punishment, that wrath, that God's due penalty for sin is coming towards me. That in that moment, did you say, okay, what I need to do is to work harder. What I need to do is to do more. What I need to do is to get a Ten Commandments and nail it onto all the walls of my house and run to the courthouse and nail it up there and to pull it down and then nail it up there again. What I need to do is have all these reminders of rules and regulations. Is that what you do? Sheepishly, you can see them saying, oh, no, that's not what we did. Paul says, I'm sorry, can you use your big boy voice? said, no, that's, that's, that's not how we came to faith. Paul said, of course not. It's because you came to faith by the hearing of faith. And where is that faith? Back in chapter 2, we found that that faith is in Jesus. It's not in something they've done. That faith is in Christ. Verse 16 said, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith, everybody say, in Christ Jesus. Through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul speaking to Peter said, because we recognize faith was in Christ Jesus, so you and I, Peter, you and I believed in him. And on the basis of that belief, they were reckoned righteous before him. So he's, he's working them into this corner. He said, let me ask you, do you was, it, was it works in this moment or was it faith and trust in Jesus? And they said, well, it was faith and trust in Jesus. He says, ah, okay. He says, well then, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He says, okay, so, you, so you're telling me that you didn't start with works, you started with the Spirit, and the Spirit headed you down this path, right? And recognize that the word he's using there is this passive idea. So he doesn't say, you started yourself in moving with the Spirit. He says, the Spirit begun you. The Spirit moved upon you. The Spirit was heading you in this direction. You have been begun by the Spirit. They say, okay. He says, but this isn't what you're doing right now. Your life does not look like dependency upon the Spirit. Your life looks like rigorous rule keeping. And rigorous rule keeping does not finish the race. Rigorous rule keeping that discourages you, that places doubts in your heart, and that moves you further away from dependency upon Jesus. You cannot grow closer to Jesus by keeping rules. You cannot grow closer to Jesus solely by doing the right things in the right ways. You only grow closer. I only grow closer. We only grow closer to Jesus by the Spirit. This is God's plan and this is God's purpose. He says, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? I'm convinced that, that a, a great number of us, that the seminal problem in our lives is not that we point back to our faith and say, oh, I began in the flesh. Because if you began in the flesh, then you're not a son of Jesus. You're not a daughter of Jesus. If you began in the flesh, you need to restart and you need to say, Holy Spirit, come in, change my heart. I want to follow you. I want you to save me radically and make me new. And God will say yes and amen. But for in a great number of us, we have indeed started in the spirit. 
And it's not a recognition of a conversation. It's not a recognition of baptism. It's we came to an understanding that Jesus saved us. Matt, why are you saved and how can you know you're saved? Because Jesus died and he rose again. Because Jesus died and he rose again, I can know that I am saved. And for any number of us in this room, that is our testimony and that is what we would say. But over the course of our lives, we have moved away from a dependency on the spirit to a sufficiency in the flesh. And life has taught you this. Life has taught you that if you do the right things in the right ways that you'll be rewarded. Relationships with the people in your lives have taught you that if you do the wrong things in the wrong ways, no one wants anything to do with you. So you do the right things in the right ways. School teaches you as a child that if you do the right things in the right ways, you'll continue to progress. If you continue to do this par excellence, you will move to a higher level. Work teaches us this. If we do the right things in the right ways, we can be advanced. If we get advanced, we make more money. So much in life teaches us to do the right things in the right ways. But when we come to Christianity, it's not the right things in the right ways. It's because Jesus has already done the right things. So what that does in us is it recognizes, it, it, it illuminates an area of our hearts set on self-sufficiency. And God says, I want to take it out of you. I want to remove the areas of your heart where you feel like you don't need me. This is what Paul's calling them to. He says, you begin in the spirit, stay in the spirit. My request, my entreaty, what I am begging you to hear is the need for greater surrender to the spirit. We want less of us, right? And we want more of him. We need greater dependency on the spirit. And he says, that was the basis. You started in the spirit. This is the beginning. You've begun by the spirit. But look at what he calls them to in their past in the recognition, verse 4. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Paul is, in, in essence, asking them, look back over the course of your life. Look back over the course of your life. Remember all the heartaches. Remember what it was like to go through your miscarriage. Remember what it was like to go through your divorce. Remember what it was like to go through active persecution in your life. Remember what it was like to lose friends. Remember what it was like to lose your church. Remember what it was like to lose your job, to lose your health. Remember all of this suffering. And in the midst of this suffering, for the Christian, you are sustained by the Spirit. You're directed by the Spirit, and you are upheld by the Spirit. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, God is refining you through the suffering of your lives. And you will not endure that on your own. can think back and look at any number of difficulties I've gone through. The loss of family members, living overseas and, and impending surgeries and our families falling apart. I can look at any number of difficult things I've gone through. In every single one of those, when I try and do it on my own, it's miserable. I feel like I make a little bit of progress and then I have a setback and it's devastating. 
but helps us to make it through the suffering. Isn't being able to compartmentalize and shove down. What helps us make it through the suffering is dependence on his hand. This is what he's calling us to. He says, if you went through those things, if you went through the middle of those things in, in vain, if they didn't add anything, if they didn't create greater dependence on God in you, then those things were indeed vain. One of the hard messages for many of us to come to an awareness of is how God in his providence uses the difficulties of our lives to drive us closer to him. Paul is calling on them to reflect upon the difficulties, the sufferings in their lives. And then he, he asks them, he says, no, no, listen, evaluate your present. Evaluate your present. Verse 5, he says, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In essence, Paul could have been asking him this question. Hey, listen, when, when it comes time to pray, when your mom is sick, when you need a job, when something else around you is just outside of your control and your ability to exercise a dominion over, in the midst of these things, what, what's your recourse? What are you doing? And they would say, well, you know, in the midst of something I totally can't control and something I totally can't, uh, you know, exercise dominion over, Paul, I suppose in those moments, rare as they are, uh, we, I don't know, we, we do, we do, we, what's the thing called? We pray. Paul says, okay, well, thank you, for, thank you for your honesty. He says, yeah, and so we pray. Paul says, okay, well, let me, let me illuminate this for you. Who supplied the Spirit to you? Was it you or was it God? And they said, well, it was God. He says, okay, he's the one who supplies the Spirit. He's the one who answers your prayers. He's the one who's working in your midst. He's the one who's producing faith in those who hear the gospel and respond to it. He's the one bringing families back together. He's the one giving health to those who are sick. He's the one giving jobs to those without them. He's the, he's the one sustaining those who feel like they can't be sustained anymore. He is the one who gives the Spirit. He is the one who sustains you by the Spirit. Let me ask you this seminal question. Is he doing this by the works of the law or is he doing it by faith? Does God look down from heaven and does he break out the abacus and does he begin to slide over and say, kind, loving, good, helping an old lady across the street, stole cable from their neighbor? Is that how he's doing this? Is he adding up all of the good and is he comparing them to all of the bad and saying, looks like they're not getting the answer to their prayer? Looks like they're getting the answer to their prayer. Or is God, when he looks down from heaven, is he seeing you through the lens of the cross and your faith tethered to Jesus? And they would say, and I think you would join them. Man, I hope he doesn't see me as I am. I hope God doesn't measure me according to how well I've done. I hope God doesn't evaluate me on how well I'm doing. I trust that God's evaluating me through Christ. You see, it's hearing through faith by which we have to live by which God is working miracles and doing works amongst us. A life lived in submission to the Spirit is limitless. 
there are no boundaries. There is no safety in that life and in that realm as we typically think of safety. But it is the life of a Christian. You see, but you and I, I feel like we've gotten very, very good at living a life of, in essence, this idea of kind of spiritualized flesh. We sacrifice just enough. We serve just enough. We sin just the right amount. Over the course of our lives, we are being indoctrinated and taught to live according to the flesh and to only go to the Spirit when it seems to be something out of our control. Everything, everything in this life is beyond your control. Where you live, the job you have, your health, your finances, all of these things are beyond your control. Of what God wants from you and me and us as a church is to live a life whereby when we go to make decisions and when we find ourselves waking up in the morning and going to sleep at night, we submit to his spirit. And so we say to his spirit, where do you want me to live? We say to his spirit, where do you want me to go? We say to his spirit, how do you want me to be? And we say to his spirit, you had given me life in the beginning. You are sustaining me now. You will carry me through to my death or the return of Jesus. You are trustworthy. And I'm going to submit my life to you. And I'm going to give everything to you. Because that's the only way to live as a faithful follower of Jesus. One who trusts and entrusting moves to submit. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word, for its clarity, for its convicting power. God, I pray that your spirit would move and stir in our hearts in this place. God, that as we are preparing to take of the cup, God, that some of us who are still wrestling with sin, that even now you would be helping us to lay those down so that we might worship you in taking the cup with our brothers and sisters. And God, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to your son, Jesus, uh, that they recognize in the hearing of this that they are those who are seeking to accomplish salvation on their own, seeking to be good on their own. God, that they would abandon that, those fruitless of endeavors, and that they would give themselves instead to the gracious, loving kindness of a God who sent his son to die in their place. Father, we submit these things to you, and we ask for your blessing, we ask for your guidance, we ask for your mercy, and we ask for your love. In Christ's name, amen.